Well, with Father's Day coming up, many of you are wondering, what in the world should I get for dad? However, for others of you, and it's quite a lot of you, Father's Day is a very, very hard day for you. It comes with a lot of bad memories. comes with a lot of difficulties. Uh, some people stay home because of it. It's such a hard day for them. And for some people, it, it, it kind of messes up with the way they think of God the Father. You know, it's interesting for, um, for a pastor, one of the biggest challenges for followers of Jesus is to convince them that their heavenly Father loves them and that their heavenly Father forgives them. Now, it's very interesting. The other side of the coin is for unbelieving people, and uh, that's one of the things that we're, we're hoping and praying to see lots and lots more of them. This was the service that they used to always come to, by the way, if you're just ever wondering. And so, uh, and many of you came to this service, and you were like, yeah, I came, and I started following Jesus. So look what happened to me. I mean, who would have thought it, right? And like, yeah, I know, who would have thought it? And um, it, it's hard to convince a lot of unbelieving people that they must receive the forgiveness of sins. And they must be adopted by God the Father in order to go to heaven. That that is part of it. That's it. Uh, Both sides need to see, they need to understand, they need to experience the love of the Father through what is the title of our message today, a gift from the Father. Now, some of you, when you hear of the gift from the Father, you immediately think, I got it. I got it. You know, I watch football. You know, a guy goes to kick a field goal or an extra point. There it is in the stands, John 3, 16. I know what that means. And so now we can go have some coffee and go have a good time. We're done. And John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world, God the Father so loved the world, that he gave He loved the world so much that he gave the world something. What did he give the world? His only begotten son. That whoever believes, more similar to our word trust, or the idea is trust, whoever believes in him, his son, should not perish. That really means hell. But have everlasting life. That means heaven. Completely true, without a doubt, true. But today I want to stretch your mind on something else that, that some of the people walked out of the first service and was like, that, that, was, that was news and that was really good news to me, that today there's another gift from the Father. It's a gift that the Father gives to Jesus. And that gift may be you. If you are a follower of Jesus, it is you. If you are not, whether you're here or in another room, you're watching us online, it could be you today. Our verse for today, if you think I'm kidding, is John 6, 37, Jesus speaking. He says, all, plural, 
that the Father gives me. So the Father gives something, lots of things, plural, to Jesus, God's gift to Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one, that's singular, it's it's a person who comes to me, some versions say whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So, yes, you, follower of Jesus, could actually be the gift that God the Father gives to Jesus. About 10 months ago, I was talking to a very, very angry businessman, not a Christian, and he was talking about another guy. And this is what he said to me. He goes, that guy needs a come-to-Jesus moment. And me being me, I said, do you know what that means? Do you know what Jesus meant when he said that? And he goes, well, no, not really. And before he could get another syllable out, I started talking. I said, basically, to come to Jesus is to behold the Son and believe in him. In in our language, it is you see Jesus and your need for Jesus and you put your trust in him. Now, to behold and to believe are one act. Your mind believes, although next week we're going to see this really interesting thing about that even. Your mind believes And in order for you to trust someone really deeply and intimately, what does that need? Your heart. And so your heart puts your trust or confidence in Jesus. In other words, to behold something, you must see it. To trust someone, something must happen in your heart. So let's see how this works, and then let's look at our part as well, because both are very important in this, these days of rising unbelief, which actually, if we get the gospel right, may be, for us, days of unprecedented opportunity. Let's go backtrack a little to John 6, 35. And Jesus said to them, I am. Immediately, people go, whoa, 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 what did he just say? I am is the name of God. This is the first of Jesus' seven I am statements. Maybe someday we'll do a series on the I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, we've jumped in the middle of what's called the bread of life discourse. Jesus is giving a sermon, but the problem that's going on right now is there is a major disconnect that is going on between Jesus and the people he's talking to. That's always a a, a difficult thing for a pastor. When you're preaching and you're like, you, you see everybody kind of turning their head like, what in the world is he talking about, right? And, you're, and, and there's a disconnect here. By the way, much harder wearing masks. That's why we're glad to get rid of these blasted things, right? Really a lot easier without them. Uh, so, so I like to, that's why I try not to stay too, too attached to a script 
Rather, I want to be able to look at the people, and when you turn your head this way sideways, I go, well, I better slow down. You ever hear me say, I've been going too fast. That's what that is. I mean, I saw a lot of turned heads. And so there's a major disconnect. Why the disconnect? Well, the day before, all the people came out and they were hungry. Jesus grabs a kid with a Happy Meal, five loaves and two fishes, and feeds 5,000 men and women and children. How many of you would think that's a miracle? That's a miracle. I mean, some of you can make food go far. I understand that with leftovers and stuff like that. I love leftovers. Um, but, but some of you can do that, but that, that's, that's really a, a miracle. And so the people come back out again. They're like, why cook when you can go to Jesus's restaurant, right? And so they're, so they're cooking, they're, they're there, and they want Jesus to cook up a meal. So the people are thinking about physical food like they got the day before. But Jesus is using it as an illustration for it to talk about spiritual food. The people are talking about physical bread. In fact, at one point in time, they say, hey, you know, Moses, you know, years ago, centuries and centuries ago, he gave manna in the wilderness. This is, this is kind of like that. But Jesus says, oh, no, no, this is different. He says, I am the bread of life. And interesting, he says here, he who comes to me shall never hunger. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. So Jesus says, it is the person who comes to him, not a good person, not the person who eats Jesus, that will never hunger. And then he goes on and he says, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He says, if you trust in me, you will never thirst. Now, this is divine, and it's also a bit confusing. One of the reasons I think it's a bit confusing is it's probably because it's very simple. But we complicate things. Jesus is saying, you need to, you need to come to me, and I'll show you how you will never be hungry again. I'll show you how you will never thirst again. Now, when we come to Jesus, faith in Jesus, do we still hunger and thirst for God? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the starvation is technically over. We now have the ability to, to fill up on Jesus and to, and to have our thirsty souls watered by Jesus. So maybe we might say spiritual starvation and spiritual dehydration are, are impossible now. So Jesus says, I am... The, there's a heavy emphasis on that word, the, the bread of life. In other words, he's saying, I am the only way to obtain and, uh, and sustain life, spiritual life, eternal life. But he puts a condition on it. You must come. You must come. Now, this is a very much repeated theme in this sermon that Jesus is giving. It's a very much repeated uh, theme or invitation from Jesus and the apostles that people must come to Jesus, to God, needy. We come to, they need food, they need drink. We come to God needy. We come to God and for God. Now, this is the problem when I say we got to get the gospel right. This is why we gave you that little card to memorize. 
if you want to have a lot of people come to your church, this is what you do. You don't tell them the truth of the gospel. You tell them that if you come to Jesus, you'll get a better life. And as many people walk in the front doors, as many people leave out the back door. It's happened to plenty of people. They come to Jesus, they go to work, they let it be known, I'm now a follower of Jesus, and two weeks later, they get a pink slip. It happens. These things happen. And so, and so we don't want to tell people you come to Jesus for a better life. Is it a better life? It is a far better life. But not necessarily within the American value system of what a better, free, a better life is. You know what most of us want? Let's be honest. Most of us want life to be a country club. Oh, garçon, garçon, I'd like a drink over here. Right? That's how most of us really are thinking. We want somebody to serve us a nice drink and some, you know, nice food at the pool or something like that in the world where it's always sunny. Right? That's, that's what we want. Is that any of your life? No. That, that's not the way it goes. And when you sell people that bill of goods, it's only going to take a certain amount of time before they realize that they bought a bill of goods. And who can blame them for leaving? And we have to overcome that with people. So, so this is from Jesus, okay, to all people. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm going to tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is for you today. This is for you today. It is an invitation to come to come to Jesus means to trust him, to believe in him, to trust him as your Savior and Lord. This is what we call faith and trust. And Jesus is using the food as a picture, often taught that way. He's a very visual type teacher, Jesus, and, and as, a, as, a, as a metaphor. And he's basically saying to them, just as you would take in bread. Now, to them, bread meant life. They didn't have... <laughs> They didn't go to the, to the aisle in the store and go, oh, I want some peanut butter, and be like, 48 brands. That, that didn't happen to them. You know, the, the food you got put in front of you, that was it. By the way, young parents, that's the way it should be. A couple hungry nights, your kids will learn. Trust me, they'll learn. <laughs> and so you, you ate bread. Bread was how you lived. And so to them, bread meant life. And so Jesus is saying to them, as you would take in bread to live physically, so you must take in me to live spiritually. That is the picture that he is painting for the people. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me. So what did they see in Jesus? Well, they saw all these miracles. I mean... You read in the book of Acts about 30, 30 miracles over about 30 years. Occasionally you hear of other miracles in the Old Testament here and there. Jesus is lighting up the place. I mean, he's going around. Nothing, nothing like this going on. He is going around miracle after miracle. You know, oh, demon, come out of that guy. Oh, you're blind? Well, you can see now, right? You can't walk? Get up, man. Your sins are forgiven. Come on, bro. Let's go for a walk, man. I mean, did Jesus, oh, you have leprosy? No, no problem at all. Hungry? How many thousands? Let's feed them. You give them something to eat. What do you mean, Jesus, you give them something to eat? You're crazy? He's like, we can do this. We can do this. People die? Get up. You don't have to be dead. No problem. I mean, Jesus is like, you see the stuff that I'm doing. And yet, he says, you don't believe. You see it all. And you don't believe. 
You, like, you think that some of them would be going, you know this Jesus guy, that I, all these miracles, maybe there's something different about him. Like, I know a lot of times I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but really, and I would be like, what is it with this guy? What is it with this guy? Now, some people think that maybe Jesus is disappointed here. I don't think so, but maybe he is. Now, we're in chapter 6. Back in chapter 5, Jesus was in Jerusalem, where all the religious people are. And he completely calls them out on their unbelief. Now, in chapter 6, he's gone back home. He's back in Galilee among his people. You know his peeps. How many know what peeps are? Let me tell you what peeps are. Peeps are those marshmallow things that you buy at Easter. And when your wife goes to the store, you grab your kids and you put them in the microwave. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like confessing. I'm not really confessing. My wife is like, why is there marshmallow all over the microwave? Because they grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay, kids, naughty. Do not do that. <laughs> Pastor Jim does it. <laughs> That's why it's naughty, Okay. So these are his people. Jesus says to them, you've seen the miracles, you got the food, and yet it hasn't, nothing special is occurring to you. What did basically Jesus get out of it? Well, I got a few people who are curious. Really, Jesus, do show us more. Like people wanted more miracles. People say, oh, if I only saw more miracles, I would believe. That is not true. You cannot make that case from the scriptures at all. Other people, um, they, they looked at it and they thought, well, this is great. This guy, somehow he could do some miracle to kick out the Romans. And so they wanted it to be all about the political situation. Jesus didn't really come with the political situation because he was smart enough to know, as we have experienced in our country, that you have one administration does it one way and the next people come in and they rewrite all the laws. That's just the way it goes. And so Jesus wanted this thing to keep going on, so he, did, he didn't want to overthrow the Roman government because the next administration would come in and do something different. So he knew the way to make the gospel to continue was to preach the good news of the gospel. Other people twist Jesus' words to get him to say what, he wants it to, what they wanted to say. And so there's all kinds of stuff going on. What do they need to do? He just told them, in verse 35, they need to take the real first step. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what you need to do. You need to take the real first step, and that step is this, believe. You need to put your trust in Jesus. He tells them that, and what do they do? They refuse. They say no. Side note, don't count this against my time, and I didn't tell this to the last service people, but sometimes people say, why does God allow so much evil in the world? One of the reasons is he does allow us to choose whether we will reject him or receive him. That's part of, part of it. There's a whole other, we can't go into it, it's called theodicy, we can't go into that today, Maybe another day. So why is this such a big deal? Why, why is this all such a big deal? Why is Jesus saying, you got to believe in me, you got to believe in me? 
Why? Why does he say he's the bread of life? He's the only way to get to heaven. Why? Well, it says in the Bible that um, none are righteous, no, not one. That means nobody's righteous. That means in God's eyes, not good enough for heaven. I'm sorry. That's just the way it goes. Young guy comes up to Jesus and goes, oh, good teacher. Jesus goes, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. People say, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. You reply, Bible says no one's good but God. None of us are good people. And a lot of times people will tell you that, well, I don't worry about the rest of the Bible. I just follow Jesus, to which I usually say, have you really read much of what he said? Because Jesus talked more about hell than anybody. Than anybody. Hell, is that, is that a real place? Yes, hell is, is conscious, eternal separation from God. Now, here's a big shocker to people. It may be a big shocker to you. Jesus and the apostles never taught that good people go to heaven. Some of you are like, call 911. Yeah, he never taught that. What's good? How good is good enough? What's the dividing line? Do you ever talk to anybody about that? They're like, well, I'm not Hitler. I was like, is that the dividing line? <laughs> I mean, come on. No, God is the dividing line. See, rather, hell is about justice for, for breaking God's law. And the hard part is we're all hell-bound because of sin and unbelief. You can read it on your own. John chapter 3, Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world. People say, see? You got to keep reading. And he goes, because the world is condemned already. It's already there. Now, some of you might say, well, why should I go where, where a murderer goes? Let's forget about the Sermon on the Mount, how Jesus elevated it to you murder people in your heart. But why should I go where a murderer goes? And what about the person who never heard of Jesus? Is that fair? It's very interesting. Whenever you talk about heaven and hell, all of a sudden the person on the island, the poor person on the island who has nothing becomes everybody's favorite person. I mean, send the guy a few bucks, would you? Come on. <laughs> Get the cobwebs out of your wallet. Everybody's always so concerned about that guy. Well, Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we've all fallen short of, of the glory of God, the glory of heaven. None of us. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. None of us are good enough for heaven. James says that if you fail in one aspect of God's law, you have failed in the whole thing. So it's not like there's a it's it's not like you know you get a certain grade and you get in. It's not even really so much pass fail. It's either you get a hundred or you're out. How many of you have ever lied before? Oh, much more honest than the last service. They are such a bunch of liars. How many of you have ever stole anything before? Oh, much more. Okay, now I know who it is. How many of you have Calvary Chapel pens at home? <laughs> I brought in about 60 this week. 
I just grab one, I put it in my pocket, and I go home. I go, oh, another Calvary Chapel pen. I put it in the pile, and then once a year, I repent and bring them home. <laughs> you know, 60 pens, 52 weeks. You know, some weeks I take two because um, I'm spiritual. I go to two services. Um, but anyway, you know, we all take stuff. I mean, the, the, you know, not that we can't take the pens, please. But if you got like 100, bring them back, please. Come on. <laughs> so, yeah, we all, we all sin. We don't, we're not perfect. Now, you might say, but how can God be fair? That doesn't seem fair that you have these really, really, I mean, like awesomely wicked people, and you've got some pretty decent run-of-the-mill people and our friend on the island who we're so worried about all the time when we're having this discussion. And, and Jesus taught, that he, you, you, every once in a while you hear him use a term like the greater sin. Jesus taught that hell will be an experience of proportional judgment. In other words, it won't be the same for everybody. A lot of it has to do with what we do with what we know. What we do with what we know. Now, uh, Luke chapter 12, Jesus is talking to uh, people about when he returns. And so he basically says, hey, listen, you know, he's using the illustration, a story, he's telling the story, and basically he says, hey, listen, if you put your trust in me and you're basically trying to live for me, you know, the best you can with my help, when I come back, good day for you, nothing to worry about, absolutely nothing to worry about. On the other hand, he's going to say, we'll see in a minute, if you say you're one of my people, but you don't care about how you live, you're probably really not one of my people, and it's going to not be such a good day for you. So we'll, we'll pick up uh, this story about servants and a master in Luke chapter 12. We'll pick it up at verse 47. And the servant who knew his master's will, what does that mean? He is clear on what the master wanted. What does the master want? that we put our trust in Jesus. If you, want, you can read Ephesians through Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 on this. We put our trust in Jesus. We're saved by grace, not works, lest any man should boast. Then verse 10 says we're saved unto good works. So that's what we are to do. We know this. We might be, as the United States, sitting on top of the world in this life. We will not be sitting on top of the world in the next life. Because we are a people who know the master's will. We know the master's will. Most Americans know the master's will or need to be explained the master's will. The guy on the island doesn't know it. We'll get to him in a second. And that servant who knew the master's will, he was clear on it, and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. Now, this is a picture this is a metaphor. God's not in heaven whomping on these guys, right? Okay, so please don't get that picture. But because you knew the right thing to do and you refused it, there's going to be a bigger punishment for you. Now we go on to verse 48. But he who did not know, there's your guy on the island. He hasn't lived up to God's standard, but he didn't know. Or other people in other places, they didn't know yet committed things deserving of stripes. They did the same stuff, shall be beaten with few. 
So it's proportional. Because they didn't, he didn't have the knowledge, it will be different. For everyone to whom much is given, to all the, the privileges we have, who in hearing the good news, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. So, in verse 36 of Mark of John 6, when Jesus says, you don't believe, if you don't believe, should you be afraid? Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, I'm not saying this to be mean. You should be very afraid. However, there are two radical concepts that you can grasp, see Jesus, and put your trust in him. And for the rest of us who have believed, it can really, really help us in a multitude of ways. The first thing is this, is that on the cross, Jesus said, I will take the punishment, the stripes, for anyone who will put their trust in me. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Jesus says, hey, you want to put your trust in me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's is what my father intended. So if you put your trust in me, I'll take the blame for you. You get no blame. You get no blame. You get into heaven. That's it. The, the second radical concept regarding this whole heaven-hell thing, this whole judgment and forgiveness of sin thing, is actually in verse 37, our verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, again, some versions say whoever, I will by no means cast out. If I could have the guys throw up the beginning of the verse up on the screen. Just hold it right there. All. Not most. Not some. Not a decent percentage. All. All that the Father gives me. All the people that the Father gives to me will what? Will come to me. They will come to me. So Jesus is confident as he shares the good news of the gospel with the people of the work of God the Father in people. Let's just leave that verse up there for a bit. We need to come back to it a few more times. So is Jesus confident in the people listening? No. Is he even really confident in the presentation? Not so much. The presentation is important, but you don't have to get every word right. You don't have to. The famous words of J.I. Packer, God saves people, and God, and God in his great love saved people in, in, a, in a haystack of error with a needle of truth. Okay? And you'd be surprised once you start talking, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what's coming out of me. Jesus' confidence is in his heavenly Father, and as he will reveal to the apostles later, the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the work of salvation, 
the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, is a divine work of God. Why is that important? Because most people we know are just living their lives, right? You can talk to them till you're blue in the face and you're like, I feel like I'm not getting anywhere because it is a divine work of God. Most people, they're thinking maybe today, you know, maybe the afternoon, maybe this week at work, maybe some retirement, but most people are not thinking too far ahead. And so we need a divine work of God. And Jesus is confident in that. But Jesus also says, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's because, not because you're so brilliant or I'm so brilliant, it's because all that the Father gives to me will come to me. The reason you're a follower of Jesus is because God gave you to me. That's what Jesus would say to us. You know, don't think, I figured it out. Eh, Wrong. Wrong. You were a gift. Now, some of us are like, yeah, I was the booby prize, man. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Right? No, that's not how God, listen, God thought you and I were worth dying for. So he just says that that God has given you to me. So Jesus isn't worried. His trust is in his Father. Later on in the chapter, in verse 44, John 6, 44, he says, No one can come to me, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That, that explains to us all the false converts. Because there are many a people that think they're coming to Jesus by themselves, even after they're so-called in the faith for a while, not realizing that we came because God brought us into the faith. That's why, any of you have any friends that are very religious but wouldn't know Jesus if he walked in the front door? Yeah, because they think it all depends on who? Them. Now, to me, when I read verses like these, As sad as I am when people don't believe, it takes the pressure off me that it all depends upon me. None of it does. Look where where Jesus lays the responsibility. Verse 36, what did he say? You don't believe. He lays it right on the people. He lays it right on the people. We call that man's responsibility. You saw the miracles. You know what's going on and you don't believe. Verse 37, he says, basically, you come to me because you hear the call. All the Father gives to me will come to me. And so that's what? That's God's part. That's God's sovereignty. In fact, it gives me, and I hope it gives you, courage to speak to people about God and calmness. This is it. In this chapter, the people get upset with Jesus. He's not upset. He's just talking to them about it. This is the, this is the deal. It's like very factual to Jesus. I'll give you some illustrations so you can see it and understand it, but, but it's, it's, very, it's very factual to him. He's very calm. It also gives us, I hope, boldness, not obnoxiousness. 
So we're, no, we're not full of fear and perseverance. We don't give up to continue to serve the Lord. That's how the Apostle Paul could write these words. If, if, if you have taken notes right now, please write down 1 Corinthians 15, 58. That's your homework this week to think about that. He says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. No matter what you do for God, it matters. No matter what you do for him, he sees it. It is not in vain. It may feel like it's in vain. It may not have the results that you want it to have. But it is not in vain. So Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will get to me. And just think of what the gift is again, a gift of people who are loved by God. Let me qualify that. A gift of sinful people who are loved by God, given to Jesus throughout the ages. Once again, notice, there's no qualifier that it's good people. It's just people. It's just people who, by the grace of God, come. They hear the invitation to come. They come and they receive the gracious offer of the kingdom of heaven that has been made to them. If you're not a follower of Jesus, again, whether you're here, another room, watching online, that offer is being made to you right now. Right now. The offer to come. Perhaps, for me, the most beautiful part of this verse is the second part of verse 37. Do we have that up there again? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one, stop right there, the one single person, it's a a singular word, the one person who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. What does that mean? That means that no one, no one should be fearful of rejection. No one should think, well, if I come to him, if I truly come to him because I want him, because I want forgiveness, because I want eternal life, because I want him to be my heavenly father, I want Jesus to be my Lord, I want to be my savior, but I'm afraid he's going to reject me. It's not going to happen. He says, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to be like, no, not you, you, you. You're kidding me, not you. That's not going to happen. Again, for next week, we're going to start to see what happens with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. It's just absolutely amazing. Interesting that the, the, phrase, the phrase, I will by no means cast out, literally means the person who comes to me, Jesus says, I will not, not cast out. He repeats himself twice. Did you ever go to a place and fill out an application for something? You know, don't call us, we'll call you. Or, or we'll get back to you next week. They don't get back to you next week. Or you get a letter, thanks for applying, we're sorry, but, you know, we're, we're going in another direction or something like that. Jesus says, hey, 
I'm going to take all applications. I'm going to take them all. I got that kind of capacity. Now, some of you might be saying, and this is a very common thing, people will say, well, Jesus won't take me because. Can I, can I tell you something? Jesus knows all your becauses. Jesus has seen all your becauses. And Jesus still invited you into the kingdom of heaven with all your becauses. There's nothing that you can do that the blood of Christ or you ever did that the blood of Christ can't cover. He still extends the invitation. Why? Because God the Father wants to give you to Jesus. You see, we have to remember that Jesus is not like us. I mean, we get hurt by people, and what do we do? We ignore them. We retaliate. We stay away from them if they're dangerous, and there is a case to be made for that. But Jesus says to all, come. You come. Even if you're the dangerous person, you come. I don't know about you, but when I read this, my heart kind of pounds with urgency to say to people, don't hesitate. If you hear the call, come and come now. Because you never know if you will ever feel this way again. But if you come, what would you expect? It's not like Jesus is going to be like, oh, it's you. <laughs> You're here? <Ugh. laughs> no, expect a warm welcome. Jesus says there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. You might even hear the party if you listen carefully enough. Look, look carefully, who is the one Jesus receives? Who's the one that Jesus has this special love for? The one who comes to me, he says. The one who comes to a person. Jesus used the term repent and believe. We use the term here a lot, turn and trust. Same thing, repent, the one who turns to God and puts their trust in me. That's the one. That's the one I'm on the lookout for. Now, for you, most of you are already followers of Jesus. And here's a wonderful thing for all of us. If you're already a follower of Jesus, he says, I won't cast you out. Don't worry about it. You come in, I'm not casting you out. It's not going to happen. Two, two classic examples we had among the apostles. Judas Iscariot. Phony. 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 When it came down to it, he was not a follower of Jesus. Hey, he was what? He's cast out. Peter? I'll die with you, Lord. Well, I'm going to the cross, boys. No, you're not, Lord. No, no. I have a better plan. I have an exciting plan for your life, Jesus. So what happens? He denies Jesus. And how does Jesus welcome him back? With open arms. Why? 
can't cast you out, Peter. You're the real thing. This is all by what we call divine decree. That because we were imperfect, God sent his son. God himself became a man, sent his son to live a perfect life in our place, to die a sinner's death on the cross in our place, to prove that God was happy with what he did, satisfied with what he did. He rose Jesus from the dead. And the Holy Spirit, when we believe, applies the, the work of Jesus Christ to us. Now, most of you know that. Most of you could recite that after being here any length of time. But this is where I want us to see in John 3.16 and in John 6.37. Not only is it divine, divine decree, it's also divine desire. God wants you and me to come to him. He wants us to come initially, and he wants us to come often. If you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus. God wants you to come today. God the Father desired to give you to Jesus. Jesus desires to receive you because of his love for the Father and because of his love for you. Verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's an important statement. Why? That shows us that God took the initiative towards you. God took the initiative towards me. We didn't make the first move. God made the first move. Not only that, he did all the work. We just need to respond to it. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, stop right there for one second. Don't look at the screen. What would you think would come next? That after all, Jesus is going, after all I've done, all I'm going to do, all I've done, the Father gives you to me, what? So you wouldn't mess it up anymore. So you would get it together. So you would do everything right. That's not what he says. He said, God has given you to me that I should lose nothing. He said, everybody who gives to me, I'm not going to lose one of them. I'm not going to lose one of them. But should raise it up on the last day. Who does that? God does that. That's God's part. Verse 40, and this is the will of him who sent me. That's the third time he just said it in three verses. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him. What is that? That's personal faith. That's whose responsibility? That's our responsibility. May have everlasting life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's God's part. So we're going back and forth between God's part and our part. This is a beautiful example of what we call compatibilism, the tension between God's part and our part. God calls us. He calls us. That's his part. Calls us to what? To believe. That's our part. Now, in no way is God depending on us for faith. God is the initiator. Yet mysteriously, we must believe. We must believe. Yet notice that Jesus promises to hold on to all who trust him to the very end. He says, I'm holding on to you, loved ones. 
I'm going to hold on from you from the moment you believe all the way to death and into the kingdom of heaven. I love that about Jesus. I mean, I absolutely love that, that he takes responsibility for holding on to us all the way to heaven despite our feeble grip on him. The other day I was at the playground with my grandson and um, some big kids came and he was afraid for a second and he comes running up to me and he's, he calls me Pops. He goes, Pops, I scary, I scary, I scary, right? And so he grabs onto me. His little feeble grip. Anybody could have pulled him away. I pick him up and I hold him tight and I go, don't worry, Pops has you. And he goes, good. <laughs> That's the difference. That's the way God has you. That's the way he holds us. We have this little tiny grip like, I got you, Jesus. <laughs> We're like tweezers. <laughs> and God's got his big old bare arms around us. And he's holding on to us tightly. So, knowing all of this, what's the responsibility of followers of Jesus to other people? Well, from what I hear from a lot of people, they think it's time to run and hide. So I'll give you two options. Is it time to run and hide, or is it a wake-up call to get on the mission? How did the first century church thrive? They had a lot of problems. Let's not paint a picture that's not necessarily true. How did they thrive in such difficult times with such hostility in the midst of a government that makes our government look like a day at the beach? I mean, we, I know we're fighting for rights, and we should, they had no rights unless Caesar said you had them. How did, how did they do it? Interestingly enough, the church thrived because they went public with their faith. They didn't hide. They were telling people in the marketplace. They were telling people at the store. They were telling people at the playground. They were telling people at the little league field, at the soccer field. They were telling people wherever they could. They were a community of people with the goal of loving all people and, and particularly loving and serving their church brothers and sisters. Galatians chapter 9, chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 says this. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, there's a caution on this. If you are serving God without the power of the Holy Spirit, you will grow weary. And if you don't grow weary, you will grow proud. And if you grow weary or proud, 
you will drop out if you're not empowered by the Holy Spirit or motivated by grace, motivated by something else than why you're doing it. So, at the end of this teaching here in John 6, the people go to Jesus, this is a hard saying. This is a hard teaching. And we're told that many of them left Jesus and didn't follow him any longer. And then Jesus turns to the 12. I don't mean to turn to you people. Hi, how are you? <laughs> and then Jesus turns to the 12. And he says to them, you know, I'm so lucky I got you 12. That's not what he says at all. He says to them, hey, do you want to leave too? Now, why would he say that? Because all the Father has given to him will come to him. And if it's not those guys, it'll be somebody else. You want to leave too? Peter, John 6, 68. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that small, ragtag group given to Jesus by his heavenly Father changed the world. Them, their wives, their kids, their friends, they changed the world. You see, what unbelieving people needed then, and they certainly need now, is to encounter what they encountered in these guys. Radically different people. Not kind of different. Radically different people leading radically different lives. People with a strong faith, a radical love, who boldly proclaim and patiently explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. There's an old expression about many of the people of the first century church. It says this, they shared the gospel like it was gossip over the backyard fence. You know, it's easy to hang over the fence and talk to the neighbor about the scuttlebutt in the neighborhood, isn't it? Hey, did you notice the car that's always parked over at Mrs. So-and-so's house right after Mr. So-and-so goes to work? Yeah, it'd be easy to talk about. They didn't talk about such silliness. They talked about the gospel. What if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus? What should you do? Well, early in John 6, the people asked that question. John 6, 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. This is it. This is it. This is what you got to do. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And here in verse 40, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him, personal faith, may have everlasting life. It is seeing Jesus Christ dying on the cross in your place for your sins and putting your trust in him. It is seeing Jesus walk out of that tomb in a resurrected body. 
This is what coming to Jesus is like. Turning to him, realizing you've been living your life with your back to him, trusting in him instead of yourself. It is the effect of God the Father calling us and showing us his son and calling us to know him. It is the Father's will that you see Jesus and believe it is the only way to change your eternal destiny. Today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and I don't care you've been in church your whole life, if you're not a follower of Jesus, come to the protective care of Jesus, to the one who says, I will never let you go, and I will never lose you. Receive God's gift of his son, and then surprise of all surprises, you will find out that you are the father's gift to his son. Let's pray.